lights love you But long as there are stars above you You never need to doubt it I'll make you so sure about it God only knows what I'd be without you All right, we elected to start our third segment with God Only Knows because even Paul McCartney referred to it as just a perfect song. God Only Knows appeared on the Beach Boys' masterpiece album, Pet Sounds, back in 1966. It was voted 25th in Rolling Stones Magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. It was ranked by Pitchfork Media, although I'm not sure who they are, as the greatest song of the 1960s. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame included it as one of 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Wikipedia notes that the song is noted for its harmonic complexity and extensive use of inverted chords. It's noted that the entire verse progression sounds restless and ambiguous until the line, God only knows what I'd be without you, when the chord progression finally reaches a clear goal. This has been cited by musicologists as a good example of how lyrical meaning can be supported and enhanced by a chord progression along with the melody hook, which also provides an example of a sense of increasing melodic energy that comes by way of the gradually ascending line. In musicologist John Lambert's opinion, the song's vocal counterpoint evokes the sacred traditions of a cantata by Johann Sebastian Pach or an oratorio by George Friedrich Handel. We judge it worthy of airplay on KDVS. All right, let's talk a bit about politics in our third and final segment today. We want to start off by plugging a wonderful video. This comes to us courtesy of Russ Baker's whowhatwhere.com website. The documentary is titled Who's Stealing Your Vote? It's produced by John Wellington Ennis. It's a hell of a good look back at the Republican vote theft of the 2000 and 2004 elections. Do yourself a favor, dear listener, and check it out. Who's Stealing Your Vote? A documentary. Now, when we get Cosmo Garvin on the show, and hopefully Cosmo will be on next week's program, we can talk a little bit about uh, the chicanery taking place in Sacramento as it takes place in so many places over, well, the public subsidy of millionaires. In this case, the arena deal that's going in in downtown Sacramento. I drove by last week and took a look at this giant monstrosity emerging in the downtown, which is, I think, sure to throttle the uh, vibrant um, entertainment community, which used to exist downtown. As reported on this program and many other places, it turns out that these arena deals really suck for the cities that are bamboozled into building them. One study showed that a sports arena works out roughly, in terms of economic advantage, to having a medium-sized department store. Medium-sized. Now over in the Bay Area, the leaders of Alameda County are taking a look at the, the screw job they got from the Oakland Coliseum and looking for a way out. They're ready to sell their stake in the Oakland Coliseum complex, which houses the Raiders, the A's, and the Warriors. Noted Mateer and Ross in the San Francisco Chronicle that the move would be a game-changer in the negotiations to keep the three teams playing in the East Bay, talks that have been often contentious and confusing for all parties. Notice the article. The question is, what kind of deal can be structured and where can we find the money to buy the county out? 
One major, one major issue that would have to be worked out is the debt that the city and county have carried since the Coliseum overhaul in the mid-1990s, which lured the Raiders back from Los Angeles. The city and county each paid $11 million a year to service the debt, which isn't scheduled to be paid off until 2026. Yeah, those arena things, they really work out well for cities, don't you think? Apparently, Scott Walker, number three contender for the GOP nomination, Wisconsin governor, well, he apparently thinks so. David Sirota notes that in recent years, taxpayer subsidies for corporations have become a huge expense. The New York Times estimates that state and cities now spend more than $80 billion a year on such so-called incentives. Turns out that Scott Walker has made such subsidies a central part of his public policy agenda. They've produced both high-profile scandals and lackluster economic results. Evidently, in 2011, Walker created the Wisconsin Economic Development Corp., to give businesses taxpayer loans and grants. Within a few years, state auditors published reports spotlighting concerns with WEDC's administration and oversight of its economic development programs and its financial management. Turns out much of the cash flowed to Walker's political allies. According to a new report by the left-leaning One Wisconsin Institute, 60%, 60% of the $1.14 billion given out by the WEDC went to firms connected to Walker's campaign contributors. Gosh, what a surprise. Sirota notes that had the taxpayers' largesse significantly boosted Wisconsin's economy, perhaps the financial mismanagement and the allegations of cronyism could be downplayed, but Wisconsin's economy has suffered. Walker's most recent budget proposed to slash $300 million out of higher education funding and spend roughly the same amount to help finance a new arena for the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh, perhaps coincidentally, one of the members of the investor group that owns the NBA team is the national finance co-chairman of Walker's presidential campaign. Boy, I bet Kevin Johnson's ears are perking up right now just hearing this. Here's the part I like best from Sirota's column. Walker pushed the subsidies despite a widely cited 2008 study by researchers at the University of Maryland and the University of Alberta, which found that the overwhelming preponderance of evidence shows that no tangible economic benefits are generated by these heavily subsidized professional sports facilities. Sorry, Kevin. Note Sirota, as Walker's record faces intensifying scrutiny during his presidential campaign, his free market rhetoric may conflict with his embrace of market-distorting subsidies for private businesses. And to that we can only add, we, we hope so. This letter to the editor of the Sacramento Bee, I think I should cite too, was by a man named Bill Westerfield. He wrote to say that on September 8th, the Sacramento City Council will determine the future character of Curtis Park Village. Since moving to Curtis Park 13 years ago, I've been to many meetings with the developer where he promised a transit-oriented, walkable development. The developer also promised Sacramento Area Council of Governments and other agencies a model transit-oriented development and received more than $10 million in public funds to connect to light rail. However, he now proposes a huge discount gas station, which studies show would draw motorists from up to 40 miles away. I feel we've gotten the bait and switch. This could turn already congested Sutterville Road into a nightmare and ruin one of Sacramento's most walkable neighborhoods. The mayor and city council rightly claim leadership in the fight against climate change. I challenge them to be true to their convictions and reject a mega gas station in an urban neighborhood. Well, Mr. Westerfield, good luck with that. I think I talked a little about this debate that's going to take place, I guess, later tonight. 
Uh, Jeb Bush is the prohibited favorite of the Republican elite, just like his nitwit brother was back in 2000. One has to wonder whether Donald Trump will prove so attractive that he can win over the money guys. And, you know, Trump supposedly is a deal maker. I think he overestimates his abilities in every area. At least it certainly seems that way. But you, you wonder whether he can pull a deal off with the GOP. I noticed on Anderson Cooper yesterday, there was much conspiracy theorizing about whether Hillary Clinton had taken a call from Trump and they're getting him to run. They actually debated this conspiracy theory for a couple of minutes. By the way, when we use the pejorative term conspiracy theory, we are referring to conspiracy ideas that are generally based on hogwash. We generally refer to real conspiracies as that. But you have to admit, the prospect of Donald Trump, popular as he seems to be with certain nitwits out there, um, running as a third-party candidate has got to scare the Republicans. Recall back in 1992, Ross Perot won 19% of the vote, largely by drawing votes, working-class voters, away from the George H.W. Bush. This certainly helped Bill Clinton. ABC News Washington Post poll shows that Hillary Clinton has a 50 to 44% lead nationwide over Jeb Bush. But throw in Donald Trump in a three-way race, Clinton's edge swells 16 points. She gets 46 with Bush at 30, Trump at 20. Maybe the Donald is cutting the ultimate deal out there somewhere. Hmm. As for Jeb Bush, we always like Will Durst's line about him that you know, he's the smart Bush which, of course, is somewhat analogous to referring to Moe as the smart stooge. And speaking of stooges, according to Marshall Burden in the Dallas Morning News, as reprinted in the week, if the sight of grown men bonking each other on the head makes you go nyuk, 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 then Ambler, Pennsylvania, has the perfect museum for you. This town, 25 miles north of Philadelphia, is home to the Stoogium, a 10,000-square-foot shrine to the Three Stooges. Philadelphia's Larry Fine and the Brooklyn brothers of Moe, Curley, and Shemp Howard. The museum's 3,500 pieces of memorabilia include movie posters, puppets, props, and costumes. They trace the slapstick master's remarkable 50-year career from their formative years in vaudeville to their 1960s feature films. It's noted that seeing it takes at least an hour. But you should leave time at the end to watch some of the Stooges' shorts that play continuously in the museum's 85-seat theater. And speaking of Stooges, which we are, and of course we're talking about a political segment, which is sort of by definition we're going to be talking about Stooges. We're quite enamored by the piece in GQ, written by Jason Zangerly, about a man named Barton Swaim. He found out the hard way that politics frowns on the clear use of the English language. For four years, this South Carolina native worked as a speechwriter for Governor Mark Sanford, having volunteered his services after spotting a clumsy op-ed piece that appeared under Sanford's name. His cover letter included the line, I don't know that much about state politics, but I know how to write, and you need a writer. But... Mark Sanford, who is now best known as the married governor who used state funds to rendezvous with his mistress in Argentina, proved to be a rather terrible boss. Not only did he throw regular tantrums and scream at his staffers, but he also demanded that Swaim, an English PhD, pack his ghosted speeches and letters with vague nostrums. Swaim says, I haven't been hired to write well. I've been hired to write badly. 
And he's got a new memoir, The Speechwriter. It doesn't identify Sanford by name, even, even as it details the scandals behind the scenes fallout. Swaim said, I never wanted to write a tell-all. I wanted the book to be about the shallowness of politics. He also never stopped finding facets of Sanford worth admiring. He learned from the experience to assume that every elected official seeks self-aggrandizement first. Think about it this way, he says. High-level politicians are people who beg you to put them in positions of authority. What trustworthy person would do that? So let's admire them when they do the right thing, but let's not trust them. Ever. And you have to take that to heart when you look around the world and see what some of our politicians have gotten us into. A couple years back, some of our bright sparks in Washington decided we should destabilize the government of of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Many said, and we reported on this program, that we did not have the strength to take out Bashar al-Assad, and in fact, we have not. But in the chaos that is created by the civil war that's now torn the country apart, ISIS has grown to take over large parts of the country. So now we are allied with elements of the al-Assad government to fight ISIS. And we're becoming closer to the Turks, at least militarily, so that they can fight ISIS. And meanwhile, in the chaos which we created in Iraq, ISIS is running amok. All right, we've got about two minutes left, and I'm not going to end on a downer like that, so let's see who we can find here. Well, I think I've got just a ticket. In fact, the current edition of, uh, special edition of Popular Science out on the newsstands, which is Mistakes and Hoaxes, A Hundred Things Science Got Wrong, is something we could do a whole show on. Curiously, I would say that the majority of items in this Popular Science issue are things that at one point or another we have touched upon on this program. But if I'm going to pick just one item out of this list of 100 for today's program, I think I'll go with myth number 51, according to the editors of Popular Science, which is that homeopathy actually works. To quote from the magazine, In the late 18th century, German doctor Samuel Hahnemann made what he considered a radical medical discovery. A substance that created unhealthy symptoms in a person could, in tiny amounts, treat the same symptoms if it arose from other causes, which is itself a very, very dubious premise. This like-is-cured-by-like theory became one of the guiding principles of a new form of medicine. He called it homeopathy. Once common in the U.S., homeopathy is still fairly common in Europe. It's also, I would say unfortunately, gaining a new foothold among Americans seeking alternatives to traditional Western medicines. Now, the substances used to create the minute doses described in homeopathy include some herbal remedies, which can also be taken in larger doses as supplements. As the popularity of these alternative treatments has grown, scientists have weighed in on their efficacy. Scientists agree homeopathy is really a pseudoscience, especially since some doses prescribed actually contain none of the substance that supposedly treats a particular condition. In 2014, after analyzing previous studies on homeopathy, Australia's National Health and Medical Research Council stated, there is no reliable evidence that homeopathy is effective for treating health conditions. If homeopathic remedies have any positive impact, a 2005 report by Lancet said, it's solely because of the placebo effect. So true, so true. People, save your money. Homeopathy is quackery. All right, I think we may actually do a special edition of Radio Parallax to talk about some of these hoaxes because we enjoy blowing those things up. If we do that program, it like this one will be produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. And for our final piece of popular music today, this one's not only a commercial hit, it's apparently the most watched tune 
in the history of the internet. But it's also pretty good. So we're going to go out with it. We'll see you next week. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style.